Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. It's the programme after the Jakarta E Prix and we're going to be talking about that and also about a few news stories that have popped up. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome back for the first time this season Toby Bloom, the correspondent for eformal.de in the German language. Uh, Toby, how, how how were things um, um, with the Jakarta E Prix and um, um, how enjoyable was the weekend for you to cover? First of all, hello. Guten Tag, everyone. Guten Tag. Um, Jakarta Ypres. Yeah, sleepy, uh, drowsy. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it was very early. Um, I sort of approached the weekend tactically. I'm not sure how you did it, but I mm. went to bed at seven on Friday, um, cancelled all my plans for Friday night, went to bed early, and then my alarm clock went at, what was that? 140 in the morning um mm. so i'd be yeah sitting in front of a screen covering fp1 which started at 215 my time um so yeah it was very early and i'm i'm not a morning person anyway uh so that was really tough um but we sort of pulled through uh i wasn't the only one uh i know and we did fp1 fp2 qualifying and then the race started at 10 my time so that sort of was was nice timing. Mm. Um, I was tired at the end of the day. Obviously, I was, um, but it was okay. It was better than I than I feared it would be. How about you? Well, How did you watch the race. Um, I approached the race tactically with the opposite strategy, and uh, I, I think it, <laughs> I think it's worth um, dispensing with any um, suspension of disbelief that I might be covering these races in person from the circuit. Uh, as 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 far as I know, even day to day Formula E journalists, some of them didn't go to Jakarta. So, uh, I, I I certainly don't feel bad about uh, remaining at home uh, for this particular race, much as I like. Uh, the idea and the culture of uh, uh, of what I've what I've heard Jakarta is like. Um, it is a long way though. That's the point. And um, so I decided to uh, meet up with a friend of mine and do uh, and and do drunk watercolor painting uh, the night before. Ooh. Yes, absolutely. Um, so this was the first time I had been painting for well, probably since I was I was very young. And um, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, then I I remember going to bed at around um, I I I guess I went to bed at around the time FP one was actually starting, and uh, got got a handy uh, three hours sleep in before qualifying, and um, and then and then another couple of hours sleep before the race. Um, I I took the viewpoint that nobody reads live tweets about about free practice, so. And, and unless you get some kind of shocking incident that happens, uh, such as you know uh, some someone's someone's regen breaking not working, for example, uh, and uh, them uh, and and them being uh, um, being crossed out of qualifying for that reason, that there's quite often very little that actually happens in practice sessions that uh, directly impacts your coverage of the race. Um, that might be a very cynical point of view, and certainly when I'm when if i'm given the opportunity to cover a race in person i will take the practice sessions much more seriously but uh, i i admire your fortitude though in getting up in time for that 
yeah, it's uh, yeah. Tasks that need to be done need to be done. Um, if it was up to to myself, I'd skip the practice sessions. To be honest, as well, um, the really important bit starts as soon as the pit exit goes green for qualifying. Um, for the teams, of course, it's important. For the drivers, for the three rookies we have this year, it's important to get the practice in. Um, but. Let's put it this way: It's not the most action-packed story. Um, session uh, of the weekend. Neither of the two practices are. Um, yeah, I, if, it, if it was up to myself, I'd only watch quality and the race as well. Uh, yes, and um, I I think maybe uh, Antonio Giovinazzi feels the same as you. Um, I I I almost don't want to intrude on um, on 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 private suffering when it when it comes to uh, when, <laughs> when when it comes to old tone. But uh, this is just not his year, and um, people were telling him that he needed to get closer to his teammate. I'm not sure this is quite what they meant. Uh, he had an impact with uh, Sergio Sete Camara on the first lap, and then. Uh, uh, dis- decided to um, um, to operate a very different strategy to everyone else during the race. And what what do you make of Giovinazzi? Because obviously, when he was a Ferrari Academy driver, he was very well thought of. It's not the racecraft that he's lacking. Um, he was on form in in Formula One. Um, of course, the his Alfa Romeo car wasn't on form, um, but he did well, and I guess he's also performing sort of well in formula e with a caveat that that of course only applies um yeah in, in the scope of what the car is capable of and that dragon car of 2021 and 2022 it's obviously the same powertrain uh, because homologations have been frozen uh, in mm. the meantime it's uh, yeah how do i not use a swear word here it's not good uh, and I, I think I think it's worth caveating, isn't it, that uh, Giovinazzi's car has been broken for several races now, and due to um, due to rules about uh, fixing items on cars and not being able to bring the car back to the factory, etc., et um, Dragon have not been able. Uh, sorry, Dragon Penske have not been able to fix that for him. Uh, so he he is he is racing with a broken car and. Also, you know, as as you rightly said, uh, in his final season at Alfa Romeo, he was at least matching Kimi. Hmm. I I wonder how um, I I wonder how much um, of a smokescreen has been thrown up, um, or or the cat been thrown among the pigeons, or whatever analogy you want to use, by the fact that actually we 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 almost don't know how good he is because that there is always that. You know, very correct suspicion. I think that Kimi Raikkonen was phoning it in in his Alfa Romeo years. So it's very difficult to know how good any teammate Kimi Raikkonen actually is or was. Yeah, and the same sort of applies for Formula E as well. Uh, the only yeah scale we have is how Gio is performing alongside his teammate, and Sergio Settecamerara is a bit more experienced in Formula E. He's a bloody quick driver himself. Um, and so far, Giovinazzi has been struggling uh, compared to his teammate. Um, it's sort of classic rookie season, if you will. Um, but yeah, doing that classic rookie season in the slowest car on the grid um, results in these sort of races that he's been having the last couple of, of weeks. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether his car is actually broken. 
um, I'll have to caveat this this as well. Um, because if it's the word is that his inverter is broken, um, and I don't really see a reason why Dragon could not change that. They don't need the car back at the factory for that. They can just bring a new inverter to the track, take a grid, pe grid penalty. I think mm. it's 20, 20 spots on the grid. That doesn't matter. He's qualifying outside the top 20 anyway. Mm. So I, I wouldn't care if I started 21st or 22nd or started 22nd with a drive-through penalty. Um, so if the inverter is in fact broken, just change it. Um, that's making me a bit suspicious about the theory that his car is actually broken. In Jakarta, he and you just touched on that. He, yeah, drove with the most outrageous strategy I've ever seen. Um, he was wasting his energy uh, as opposed to usually um, slower teams, the Neos and the Mahindras, and sometimes even the Nissans and Dragon. And they are all doing a what they call super safe strategy mm. so they're saving energy and saving energy saving energy in the first half of the race hope for a safety car and then use that energy in the second half geo did the exact opposite uh, in jakarta he wasted his energy mm -hmm. at one point i think he was eight percent down on on the cars around him and the point of that was that dragon had hoped for rain and for not only a safety car, but for a red flag. The only way this strategy could have paid off is if the race had been red flagged and not restarted. And that's a big gamble. Um, the rain in the end didn't come. Uh, it stayed dry till the end and he had to retire early. I think three, three laps early because he just ran out of energy. Um, it, yeah, it's probably the... <laughs> the <sighs> The least thought-through strategy uh, I've, I've seen in recent times in Formula E. Um, and that, of course, doesn't look good for him as well. Um, yeah, point is, he's having a really difficult time this year. And I'm not sure if he stays around in Formula E for another year. I'm sure he wants to do that with a different team, with a different powertrain. Because he can be individually he can be as competitive as as he ever was in that dragon he's not going to go anywhere this year uh, you're absolutely right uh, in in jakarta uh, it seemed to almost be like one of those testing runs that f1 teams used to do on the first day of testing to try and grab a sponsor or two in that uh, it, it was almost as though he had agreed with the team or just decided by himself that he was going to push as hard as possible to try and get some pace out of himself and the car and then if he ran out of energy he ran out of energy which um, almost seems to me to be a sort of desperate last throw of the dice it's fascinating to me how drivers stay motivated, though. It's uh, how do you keep your optimism in these kind of situations? You're always last or second to last, and maybe you're in the top 20, but only if other drivers retire. And objectively, in a normal race, Giovinazzi is not going to score a point this year. And still, he turns up to the races, does the practice sessions, gives his best in qualifying, tries to beat his teammate, which is really difficult, and does the races and sort of keeps his head up. It's amazing to me how he stays motivated. Um, 
I only can only imagine how difficult that must be for him uh, right now. Yeah. Um, some somebody else who seems to be on occasion struggling to stay motivated, and uh, I I did a whole podcast with the excellent Ida Wood uh, a few months ago um, on exactly how you can figure out the enigma that is Dan Tictum. It turns out it's quite easy. Just get him to write an opinion piece. That's what Autosport <laughs> did. Um, and uh, he, he revealed a few things in that opinion piece that uh, uh, would would have been strange for any other ra- professional race driver except maybe Nikita Mazepin to have said. Uh, one one was that uh, his, uh, his sights were on uh, Formula 1 or IndyCar, not Formula E for this season, but they weren't available as options. Um, the other was that uh, he um, um, he he is aware of how much it was going to be a struggle with Neo three three three, but uh, that that he and the team are doing the best that they can, and that he's he's sure things are going to pick up. It 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 was all fairly sort of uh, vanilla milk toast stuff, but the the fact that a driver was willing to actually say it uh, and was willing to write to seemingly write his own opinion piece because it sounded like it was in his own voice. I, I think that was what maybe got a few people's hackles up. And I, I, I do think that when Dan Tictum says things, it tends to provoke more outrage than when anyone else says things. Um, if Giovinazzi had written that opinion piece, I don't think people would have been... Um, uh, quite so frothing on social media about it mm-hmm. but um yeah it was interesting to hear it from a driver and he he does sound like someone who went into formula e because it was the best option available to him and is doing the best he can with what he considers to be um uh and a fairly average seat yeah less than average i think he's doing well as well um, I spoke to him after Berlin and actually asked him the same question I just raised about Giovinazzi. How do you, you cope with these cars? How? What do you do after after another 17th place? And he genuinely said, I go and have about five pints. Um, we're all <laughs> human. We do that. And it's the only thing that helps sometimes. <laughs> which was really surprising to me as well to hear drive actually say that although it wasn't surprising to to learn but hearing a driver say yeah, we go and get drunk sometimes as well um do a, a boozy paint a painting um <laughs> yeah Anyway, I, th- I, think, um, I think maybe Dan. I think maybe Dan needs to become aware or live in a country where it's legal to have CBD, possibly. Yeah, that might help. Yep. Because <laughs> um, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not some kind of advocate uh, for the green leaf lobby. But w- what I can say is, it's probably healthier in the long run to do that than get drunk. Probably. Yep. Uh, I, I'd agree as well. Yeah. Anyway, Dan Tictum. He, at least, as opposed to the Dragon Drivers, has something to salvage from this season. And it's the fact that Neo are improving. Um, In Rome, they introduced a couple of new, just in the background, a couple of new processes. And they were trying new things and ended with both drivers in the top 10 in the first race, both scoring four points which was the first time, I think the first time since Buenos Aires 2017 
um, that both Neos ended up in the top 10, um, which is a huge success for the team. Mm. And then the next day, I think he was fourth in FP3 um, on merit. That's good to see as well. Now in Jakarta, both drivers held a 1-2 for a couple of minutes in FP2. And even if at the end of the session, they still ended up, I don't know, outside the top 10 probably, that is a success for Neo. Being first and second, if only for a couple of minutes, that's a success for Neo. Mm-hmm. And they are being held back, just like any other team is being held back, from the fact that powertrains are frozen. And this, the, these kinds of results at least give them optimism for their Gen 3 development. And it gives the impression, or you can be a bit more optimistic about Neo's trajectory for the next couple of months um, than than for Dragon. Um, although, to be fair, Dragon look like they'll be taking on a new powertrain supplier anyway. Um, mm-hmm. They've not signed up, or Penske haven't signed up for, for a manufacturer spot, and it looks like Dragon will be te- teaming up with DS Automobiles. Yes. Which and, um, would I... give... I, I really want to talk about that, and uh, let's let's put a pin in that because uh, you you mentioned uh, Neo three 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 are perhaps looking forward to Gen three, and I think that there's a reason why things might improve for them next season because uh, what what they have been held back by I think a little bit uh, in this current era of Gen two is like like you said the the powertrain homologation and also the fact that they're the only people running their powertrain uh, which is obviously the same thing is true for Mahindra and the same thing is true for Dragon Penske now mm-hmm. next season there are going to be twenty four cars on the grid and twelve teams and. I've been working out in my head that um, if if the media rumour is correct and if, for example, Andretti take Porsche and DS, uh, DS work with Penske as well as uh, having the same powertrain in the Maserati, then if we assume that uh, each powertrain supplier supplies one customer team, then... Unless someone is going to be given dispensation to supply two teams, that surely means that DS, sorry, that Tachita um, minus DS will be running a Neo three 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 powertrain, or is it more complicated than that? It it's possible, yeah. Um, I let let's do it together. Let's work out who who's going to be teaming well, up with. So um, 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 so so Mercedes are pulling out, and McLaren is going to work with Nissan next season. Um, yes, that's one team. Um, and uh, Apt are almost certain, apparently, to run with Mahindra next season. Yes, that's another another team, or maybe even four teams if we take the manufacturer teams. So mm-hmm. four. Then we have DS and Dragon. Um, yeah. We have who else? Porsche and Andretti. Um, that's another two teams confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, who else? Maserati being um, Envision and Jaguar. Um, uh, Mas- Maserati is effectively going to be a second DS customer team, isn't it? Yeah, officially they're they're on their own. Yeah, it's officially Maserati is an own. Yeah, is a powertrain. 
<laughs> and uh, with, with, without getting too far into the weeds here, what's the rule on white labelling? So if you white label a powertrain as uh, another uh, member of your auto group, does that mean that you are allowed to supply two teams or four teams with, the, with that powertrain? I think four teams. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that. But hmm. in my understanding, DS would be able to supply a second team and Maserati would be able to supply a second team as well. Um, maybe there's an exception. Um, I'll, I think, I'll let I think you the, know. I think the exception is that uh, DS does not want anything to do with the cheater after this season's over. Fair point. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so these are, are the next two teams. And then I guess it's only... Yeah, only Neo and the Cheetah left. So, Russell O'Hagan, the uh, Neo uh, chief operating officer, said uh, that um, uh, he he was uh, he he was very happy to. Well, he he pointed out that it's a, it's obligatory if asked that uh, that the team mm. is ready to supply a second team, and he said that he'd be very happy with the additional mileage that would be that would be picked up and the additional knowledge that would obviously be pick, be picked up with an, another team running it at the same time. I I think it could um, push their powertrain development beyond where it can go right now. But what do you think? Yeah, that, that's the whole point of having customer teams, isn't it? To have four cars in the running instead of two, to have four cars collecting data, to have four drivers giving feedback, to have four times the amount of, or twice the amount of data to rely on for your next phase of, of development. So if Neo was to enter a customer team, and at this point in time, it, nothing's been confirmed yet. Um, although, to be honest, Tachita and Neo, the two Chinese entities in Formula E, let's not forget, um, mm. are, are, at least on paper, seem like a good match. Um, that would give Neo a benefit not immediately for the first two years of, of Gen 3 because remember you only can homologate your powertrains for two years and the the second cycle of the Gen 3 homologation then starts in 2025 or 24 if you will mm. um, and that would give Neo a benefit for that second homologation cycle not for the first but having, as I say, the, twice the amount of data to rely on, um, that can only be, be beneficial for you. So. Yeah. Um, DS Penske is an interesting one to me. Now, um, Dragon Penske has not been a... How do I put this nicely? Uh, it's it's not been a conventionally run team in terms of <laughs> uh, in terms of being able to keep hold of key staff for some time, and uh, it it tends to have a revolving door of drivers uh, most seasons. Although they've they've obviously kept the same drivers on for um, for the whole season so far. Um, would would you assume that uh, to attract in DS powertrains and potentially John Eric Verne and Stoffel Van Dorn that some fairly sweeping managerial changes have been promised in the background there? I, I, it's the only thing I can see, or the only reason I'd see Jeff and Stoffel joining them. It's <laughs> this is turning into a big old dragon rant, and I love it. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the, the team management. It's mainly been the team management in a couple of years. The mechanics are, are working as hard as anyone in the paddock, and the drivers are driving as fast as they possibly can. But as you rightly point out, the management of, of the squad has been <sighs> abysmal. Um, it's <laughs> it's not been good uh, how, how Dragon, Penske, Autosport have been managed in the last couple of years. And it's an indication. Diaz Automobiles joining or looking to be joining the team next year um, is an indication that the management structure is going to change as well. Um, because let, let's let's call them out. <laughs> Jay Penske as the team principal there. Um, I'm not sure uh, Stoffel, either Stoffel or Jeff would be joining Dragon uh, if he stays around. Uh, Tomasz Evoshevi, DS Tachita team principal and head of DS Performance, has been gaining some experience in Formula E now that he's a team principal there. That wasn't planned. He was supposed to only be the one representing the manufacturer, DS Automobiles. And then Tachita, as we all know, ran into financial problems and he had to take the reins from Mark Preston. Uh, so he is experienced in running a team on, the, on a day-to-day -day basis in Formula E. And it would only make sense to me um, if he continued that in, in, with a new operations team next year. Um, as, just, as I say, nothing's... I don't know whether Jay Penske is going to stay around next year as team principal of DS Dragon, hmm. but I'd be surprised if he did. And um, I, I think that might be... so. We we might find that uh, an an excellent role for him is as some kind of executive chairman. Uh, that is the I, I mean I, I believe he's been quite hands on at Rolling Stone, but uh, he obviously can't be in the office every day, and uh, the magazine seems to be doing quite well. So I I think it's entirely possible that if he takes a couple of steps back, then uh, he might be of benefit and help to the team still. And a similar thing worked out nicely for Venturi, didn't it? They sort of restructure their organization. Then I have a chief executive officer in, in Susie Wolf, and she's running the business alongside the investors, uh, Scott Swid and Jose Asnabotea, I think is his name. Uh, you as investors or... Um, well, uh, Jose, yeah. Asna, Jose Asna Botea, um, uh, I, I thought it was very good of Alejandro Agag to uh, find, one of, <laughs> find one of his relatives with some money, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's Spanish, but their sort of conglomerate is, is, is uh, US American. And then you have Jerome D'Ambrosio actually doing the day-to-day -day business and running of, of the team. So that structure paid off brilliantly for Poventuri because they've scored already more points this year than they have in any other previous full season. Um, so maybe that's a good idea for Dragon as well. Um, sort of maybe have Jay Penske as the president of the organization or whatever, and then have DS Automobiles run the personnel and run the operations team that will keep the Dragon name. Um, but that's a possibility I see for, for how Jay Penske could stick around in Formula E if he's if he wants to and um, uh, superficially because I do love to be superficial sometimes um, can I can I uh, take a moment to uh, please applaud the fact that uh, you know Formula E has entered its architect era because 
um, most of the Formula E team principals, particularly the newer ones, all look like they could be architects. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, so um, you, you know, fair, fair play to Amy or Lindsay. Um, seem, seems like he did a good job while he was at Porsche, but uh, he he was very much the the sort of um, um, aging tattooed motorcyclist. Uh, whereas he was replaced by Fl- Florian Merdlinger, who looked like he'd mm-hmm. just co- just come out of a practice that had just built the built a bank's flagship building in Munich or something. <laughs> um so yeah. similarly mark preston um old school old school team principal um who uh worked in f1 for super Aguri and various other teams and uh had been in formula e since the start uh he took a back seat to race race some finances at Tachita and um in came thomas chevauchet who uh, very much could 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 slide into foster and partners quite easily couldn't he he could, yeah, and the same applies to to most other team principals as well. Uh, I'm, I'm, as soon as you said architect, I thought of Tommaso Volpe at Nissan. Oh yes, um, he'd be, yeah, he, in a parallel universe somewhere out there, uh, the FA team principals are, I don't know, wearing suits and ties and are going to do i don't know business ah, except, except they were important they wouldn't be wearing suits and ties what they'd be wearing is uh one of those unstructured um unstructured jackets uh with 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 maybe maybe a button down shirt and also so a pair of those very thin glasses with colored frames yeah and having like a pullover over their their shoulders yes uh, yeah, a business shirt, but then a pullover uh, to make it very casual. That's what they'd be wearing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking maybe what what Luis Enrique wears when he's on the bench for Spain. That kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, mm. exactly that. That's what they'd they'd be wearing. We only need one one Spanish speaking team principal now. Um, not yeah. sure if Tommaso speaks speaks Spanish as well, but he's Italian. Um, not sure if he speaks a bit of Spanish as well. <laughs> and um, actually, Tommaso Volpe, great example. Uh, the person he replaced was Michael Carcamo, who uh, looked like he could have worked, uh, looked and sounded like he could have worked for Microsoft. He he was he was that kind of personality. Uh, <laughs> Tommaso, architect, definitely. Um, similarly, I I would be over the moon um, if I could if 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 I had confirmation that uh, it, it it seems from what Zach Brown is saying that uh, that Ian James might be continuing as team principal for Mercedes when they become McLaren. I don't know if you have any news on that, but I would be over the moon if Ian James remained there. I, as, as far as I know, he is going to be staying there, yes, because it's going to be staying the same personnel. They just change shirts mm. um, from from silver, white, sort of, to hopefully papaya. Uh, I don't know whether McLaren are actually going to be papaya orange next year hmm. because i i hope they they do pick the papaya colors for formula e as well which would only make sense if you think about their f1 cars the extreme e car is papaya as well the indy car operation is in, in orange most of the time as well so why i don't see a reason why mclaren wouldn't be papaya next year um and the staff of the team which would include the team principal would only have to change shirts uh that's how i understand it I think Ian James is going to be staying around next year, uh, which is good uh, because he speaks German. Um, when I talk to him, I, it's, it's mostly in English, to be fair. Um, but for my audience in Germany, uh, it's it's 
good to have another German-speaking team principal uh, alongside Florian Modlinger and whoever is going to be in charge of of Apt. Maybe Thomas Biermeier. I don't know. Maybe he's he's the CEO of Apt Sportsline. Um, not sure if he's going to be the team principal uh, or whether he's going to sort of pick another person out of the Apt Sportsline operation. But then there'll be three German-speaking team principals, which would be great news for myself. Interesting, <laughs> interesting you said Florian Modlinger. Uh, were you anglicising it? Because I, I sort of, I, I erred on the side of Merdlinger because I assumed that was what it would be. But uh, am I wrong there? It's, it's not an umlaut, like the ah. over the two dots are read. It's, in, in German, I, I wouldn't pronounce him as Florian Modlinger. It's Florian Modlinger. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. And but, fancy uh, name. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. Um, so uh, we've... The first time, by the way, the first time I met, I, I thought I'd met Florian Modlinger. I heard that he had joined, he was working for Apt before that, which then turned turned into Audi later. And I approached someone from Apt Audi who I suspected would be Florian uh, in the Paris pit lane in 2018, I think. And I completely got the wrong person. Um, he worked for Audi, but it wasn't Florian Modlinger. It was Marcus Mickelberger, the engineer for Lucas Degrassi at the time. Hmm. And that was a very awkward interaction. Um, and the first time I, th- the first time I met Marcus Mickelberger, and the first time I thought I'd met uh, Florian Modlinger. <laughs> well, um, but perhaps it's the reverse of what happened with me and James Collado, where um, I said, uh, "Hi, James, nice to meet you," uh, on media day, and he said, "We've already met." That that was that that was a stinger. For ooh, me. <laughs> ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, James Collado. What is he up to these days? Um, I would imagine he's still racing in WEC, although I have no idea. I think he is. I think he's still with AF Course and is doing Le Mans this weekend. Mm-hmm. If if that's so, good luck, James. Well, he seems in his natural element there, and fa- fair play to the guy. He he was he he certainly never complained when he was at jaguar but uh, i i think uh, it was one of those challenges he had to take and he found that he preferred being a world champion in a side of the sport where he was perhaps more respected and fair play to the guy i guess absolutely fair play same applies to adam carroll as well i mm-hmm. uh, chatted to him in in the rome pit lane this this year and he didn't have the greatest of times at Jaguar when he was still a full-time driver in, in Formula E. He is still racing, by the way, um, somewhere in the UK. Uh, not sure if it's British GT or something else. Ah. But if he's not racing, or when he's not racing, he is running two Italian restaurants in, in, in Northern Ireland. Ireland. Yeah, in in, in Moigashell, I think that's the name of the village. Uh, together with his wife Claire, um, they they have a very successful restaurant there. I think with a staff of over a hundred people. Um, so it's a huge place that he's running. Um, so he's he's staying nice and busy as well uh, when he's not racing. It's good to see. There was there was a time when I would have looked at a driver uh, taking a job outside of motorsport and sort of occasionally dabbling in something like British GTs and I would have said well 
that's a shame he's failed but i i think with the benefits of uh hindsight and perhaps a bit of life experience as well i i i kind of understand now that it, it's it's not failure to find something that you really like and i i would imagine that being out on the road for nine months of the year as a racing driver especially when you're constantly trying to raise money to keep doing it must be incredibly draining um and i've heard that his his stone baked pizzas are among the best in um in in ireland as well so fair play absolutely yeah and it's he seemed genuinely happy with how he's doing and what he's doing and as long as people are happy i am happy as well um it's good to see uh how he's doing and he's still keeping track of FE. He's he's Neo's reserve driver, so he's not completely out of the picture. Hmm. Um, um, we talked a bit about Venturi earlier, and of, of course that they are having, well, their their best season in the sport this season. Um, um, Ed, Edo Mortara is third in the championship, uh, just two points behind John Eric Verne in second, and. Um, is is also Mr. Consistency. That seems to be something he's worked on since last season. Um, I remember his, remember his season five when he won um, the disputed race in Hong Kong and then didn't pick up a point, I think, after that. Um, yeah. And uh, re- really, he's made so many improvements uh, on his on, on, on the kinds of things he goes for. He, he doesn't seem to be going for low percentage dive bombs this season like maybe he he could have been accused of doing last season and uh he he's really had the measure all season of Lucas Degrassi and um obviously Degrassi Buemi they were the titans of gen 1 I don't know whether uh this is a natural drop off as they as they get older or whether it's just that Mortara has all of the experience at Venturi he's been with the team so long and he he knows exactly how to get the best out of that Mercedes powertrain having driven with it for two seasons prior to this one and um mm. he's just doing an excellent job and uh, I I think sometimes you need to not look at uh, how how one driver is uh, is is slower than expected, and just marvel at the fact that uh, one driver is doing exceptionally well. But how have you made uh, Mortara's season? Obviously, he, fin- he finished third in Jakarta and continued his excellent mm-hmm. ru- excellent run of points. Um, do, would you say that he's a real title contender, or um, are, are you sort of expecting maybe Van Dorn, Vern, or even Evans to uh, spring ahead of him and uh, finish ahead in the rankings? That's difficult to say. Uh, I think it will be one of those four, yes. Uh, and it might be Edo Mortara. Um, we'll have to wait and see. As a matter of fact, he is in the form of his life, maybe at least in, in the best form he's ever been in Formula E. And that is down to experience with Venturi. Um, he knows the car inside out, just as you as you said. As opposed to Lucas Degrassi, who had to learn the systems from scratch when he joined uh, this season. Um, so he already had the advantage over his teammate. Um, and then it's mainly been qualifying, I guess. That was the main weakness he had in, in the last couple of years, that he just didn't wasn't able to put it together in qualifying. And that really changed this year. Um, I think he is the driver who's won the most duels so far. Um, 
I think he only scored two pole positions, uh, both of them in Berlin. Um, but still, his qualifying pace has been from another planet this year compared to last. Um, yeah, and that's been been the main reason I, or that's what I'd say is the main reason for his good runner form lately. Um, yeah, it's, whether it's his race pace, whether it's his qualifying pace, whether it's experience, he simply is in the best form he's ever been in Formula E, um, and it's it's fantastic to see. Uh, I did not expect him to to be doing as 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 well as he is right now a couple of years ago i remember before season six he there was even talk about venturi maybe showing him the door and replacing him with another driver for for season six um or season seven sorry and that didn't happen and look how how he's doing now where he is now it's yeah it's it's genuinely impressive um and circling back to to the initial question yes he is a title contender absolutely i think we're we're down to four title contenders now um and he is in a very good position two of those four title contenders are running mercedes powertrains which appear to be the most competitive on the grid right now um so it's yeah the, the stars are aligned well for him this year um at the end of the year, when we come to South Korea, I think, as usual in FE, it's the consistency that will make the difference. And if he is able to stay consistent in these next, how many have we left? Seven races, I think. Um, he is going to be a genuine title contender. Yes. Mm. Um, obviously, Porsche had their um, excellent race in Mexico. Um, haven't really repeated that feat uh, or looked like repeating that feat rather since but uh, given that uh, they're probably going to be supplying a second team in Andretti next season and it looks like they're going to have uh, Pascal Verline and uh, Antonio Felix de Costa as teammates next season I would assume you see that uh, you see that improving and you see them being genuine title contenders next season yep yeah Porsche expected to be title contenders this year as well um, which was surprising to hear. That was, I think, their, the headline of their press release before we started the season. Porsche is aiming for the World Championship, which was surprising for me to see because we talked about that earlier. Powertrains are the same as in 2021. And I didn't see a reason why Porsche would be doing better this year than, than last uh, when they were contenders for top five, maybe, sometimes a podium this and that, but not for the championship. And there are no championship contenders this year as well. Um, but especially that race weekend in Mexico was uber impressive. Um, they were close to repeating that in Monaco, maybe, if Pascal Wehrlein hadn't have to, didn't have to retire uh, from the lead. Um, which... I, I'm not sure. Uh, Porsche seems to know what the issue was now. Um, initially, it sounded like maybe it was a nine volt battery that sort of supplies all electrical systems in the car with power. Now they've had to open the inverter, which uh, gave Pascal a five place grid penalty for Jakarta. And they applied some glue somewhere and they had to open the inverter and break the seal. And that's the reason why why he got that grid job. 
Um, anyway, uh, back to the question. Um, I think Porsche... The, the scope of the operation is so, so large. It's such a big team um, that I'm sure they will have to be considered as one of the favorites going into Gen 3. Maybe another team finds the secret ingredient earlier than Porsche do. Then Porsche might not be the main title contenders. But simply because of the amount of resources Porsche have available to them um, makes me think that they are going to be title contenders. Yes. Hmm. And uh, And you? What do you think about Porsche in Gen 3? I, I think Porsche in Gen 3 are going to be right up there, but then I thought I thought that this season as well. I, I honestly thought mm. after after Verline's performance in Puebla, particularly last season, uh, when he was unfortunate, obviously, I, I thought that uh, there was no reason to suggest that he wouldn't be uh, a contender. And um, as you say, I think circumstances have counted against him a few times. Um I I had my doubts about Andre Lotterer. I I think that um, he was a very good backup for John Eric Verne at DS to Cheetah, but he was always uh, very much given the sometimes unspoken, sometimes spoken impression that nothing more was expected of him there. Um, he he went to Porsche obviously because of the mm. good good relationship he he'd established there um, in LMP one and. He's he's done a reasonable job, um, but I I think it's uh, it's 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 fairly well known that he will be moving on at the end of the season, or or at least um, that 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 is the word that people have got, and um, I would I would assume that he's going to be moving back to their Porsche's LMDH program uh, in sports car racing, which. I, I think is just set up for him. I, I, I think he will be one of the fastest people uh in sports car racing. He's he he's still very much got a strong head on him and um he, he will do a great job for them. But uh yeah, I one one thing I feel about uh the Formula E drivers who are likely to leave the sport, with potentially the exception of Nick De Vries, if if it if it's possible that he might move to WEC with Toyota and uh, not be able to dovetail that program with Formula E, which uh, which is looking for a larger calendar next season, then uh, with his exception, all of the drivers going out, as good as they are, are probably going to be replaced by even better quality drivers coming in, aren't they? <sighs> yeah, that's the problem Formula One has had in the last decades. There are only so many spots on the grid. There are so many more great drivers out there. Uh, I think if Andre Lotterer has to leave Porsche, that would be one of the harshest decisions in the last couple of years because look at the season he's having. Um, He's been on the podium in in Mexico. He's been scoring points for top four finishes in uh, Rome and Berlin as well. Um, And Diria, I think... So Andre Lotterer is doing really, really well this year, and he's, out, um, he's and outscored Verline as well. Yes, yes, that's right. He's four points ahead of Pascal Verline at the moment, and yet he seems to be the one getting the boot for next year, which is so harsh. Um, but it's the harsh reality uh, in FE nowadays. Um, I, I, th- I think I think they've made a decision, and this is just just my speculation that. 
uh, Lotterer's ceiling is is where he is now. That uh, he's he's always mm. going to get those podiums because he's got the driving brain to do that and still the speed to do it but that he's probably not going to be the multiple winner that they're looking for he might be formula is nick heidfeld um always Sh there or thereabouts but surely, never surely, on the top step of the podium surely nick heidfeld is formula e's nick heidfeld yeah he is nick Heid formula is nick heidfeld too but maybe formula e has two nick heidfelds um <laughs> One of them being the real Nick Heidfeld. Because Nick, I think Nick was on the podium as well and never won. Um, did he ever end up on the podium? I think Nick was on the podium in Formula E. Um, and same applies to, to Andre Lothar, who's been around forever. Um, for the entirety of Gen 2, at least. And then a season with Tachit in, in season four. Uh, and he's never won. And that might be the killer argument, the argument at the end of the day for him. Um mm. And him being 40 doesn't help, um, which is very harsh to say. Um, but usually drivers aged 40 or, or above are nearing the end of their careers anyway. So Porsche has plenty of other attractive drivers to look at. Hmm. The obvious one being Antonio Felix da Costa. Um who is how old is Felix da Costa? Two. Antonio uh, Felix da Costa is a lot younger than we think. I think he might even be thirty. Um, maybe I'll just do some googling while while yeah, we're talking. I think he's thirty. Oh my god! Yeah, so he still has lots of time in him still. Um, and he is thirty. Porsche, yeah. Thirty. Yeah. Okay. And Porsche obviously is attractive because of their LMDH program. And the word is that Felix da Costa was very disappointed by how Peugeot treated him, um, who are a sister brand, a Stellantis sister brand of DS. And he was, after spending years and years in LMP2 in mm. WEC, uh, was looking to join Peugeot for their uh, hypercar program. And he wasn't brought on board. Um, instead, mm. they signed the old guys, the old guard, Loic Duval, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and Kevin Magnussen was signed initially as well. And Felix Acosta had hoped to join that program as well. Uh, wasn't able to. But now with Porsche, he has an option of doing the World Endurance Championship in a top tier class car um, as well alongside Formula E. So it's it's twofold, the the yeah. uh, traction of, of a Porsche deal for, for Felix da Costa. And my, my understanding was that another issue with Antonio not getting a drive at Peugeot was that he was always he was always contracted to, to Cheetah, not Stellantis. But I don't mm -hmm. know how true that is. Yeah, that's what I heard as well. Um, funnily enough, John Eric Verne, the one... Of the one of the early investors into Tachita, mm. uh ended up being the DS driver, and yeah, Antonio Felix da Costa was only, ever only signed to Tachita, um, which obviously made it difficult for for him to join Peugeot in in WEC. Um, yeah, if he ends up being a Porsche Works driver, he could do both programs at the same time. 
Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, Porsche were the first team to go testing this week with Pascal Airline in the Gen 3. Um, or at least they were the first team, sorry, to release pictures from testing. Uh, other people have been out as well. But um, certainly the uh, the social media comments continue to be erring on the negative side with, with, with the Gen 3 and how it looks. Uh, one, one, co- one commenter, um, my favourite comment was... Uh, Ah, the aerodynamic power of Wedge. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, Jean-Éric Verne said um, quite indifferently uh, about the Gen 3 chassis, well, it's not the most aerodynamic, but it, but if it's what Formula E wants, dot, dot, dot. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I, I think um, the, the drivers are also maybe looking at it and thinking, well, this this wasn't quite what we wanted. Some of them, um, but they're, they're racing drivers. At the end of the day, when they're in the cars, they can't see how it looks from the outside, and I, I think they will be more interested in um, how it performs uh, in 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 a tight midfield battle, won't they? Absolutely, yeah. If it as long as the Gen Three is is quicker uh, than the Gen Two, I think drivers will still end up liking the thing. Um, but I. Yeah, I've heard the same things in Monaco when Formula E officially launched their Gen 3 car. The drivers had obviously seen pictures of the car before. I think in Valencia, the the FEO, the Formula E operations entity, did give them sort of a heads up, a little presentation um, of, of how the car is going to be looking like. But actually, when Formula E launched the thing, the real thing in Monaco, that was the first time many of the drivers saw an actual chassis um and yeah could could touch the car and it was fascinating to see them after the presentation had ended walk up on stage and touch the car the chassis for the first time that was fun to see um but the general mood in the paddock after that gen 3 launch was with the exception of obviously jamie regal um a bit um, yeah I'm not sure that there's even a word neither in English or German for it. They weren't just, they weren't ecstatic about it. Um, it was a car, but they were all expecting a bit more, um, both in, in terms of looks and in terms of performance. Obviously, at the end of the day, it's the job of the manufacturers that build the powertrains to make the car go fast. Um, but FE expects the Gen 3 car to be about one and a half seconds a lap quicker than gen, than the Gen 2, mm. which isn't too much, to be honest. Um, it's I, I was expecting a larger sort of leap, um, and the manufacturers will work on, of course, work on, on trying to make the car two, three seconds a lap quicker, not just mm. one and a half. But the general mood in the paddock was one of disappointment, mainly. I, I would I would agree with that from what I've heard as well, but what what I would say is that uh, the the Gen three car from a performance and technical point of view is is li- is light years ahead, and I I I love well um, I I don't love the fact that they abandoned four wheel drive, but 
I can see why from a cost point of view they might do that and I'm, I'm very happy that they still have front wheel regen although uh, Lucas Degrassi um, has has come out he's pretty much been the only driver to have come out with with an, with an opinion that is not um, unalloyed positivity about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it essentially he's he said that it doesn't go far enough uh, I I did try and push Jeff for an opinion on his comments but uh, Jeff wasn't really biting I, I feel that um, when you catch Jeff in race mode, he's not reflective, and he he doesn't particularly like those kind of philosophical questions. He prefers to focus on what's in front of him. Whereas, of course, if you if you buttonhole Degrassi at any point, he will he will give you a comment on that kind of thing, won't he? Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's he's one of the best drivers to interview for us journalists because he always has something to say about about something. Um. About the, the comments Degrassi made, he, of course, wished for four-wheel drive. Um, and I see a real possibility of that, in fact, happening at some point in the future. Uh, the cars have a front motor uh, that's only being used for now for energy regeneration. Um, but if you use the motor one way, which is recuperating energy, uh, you can also use it, of course, the other way around. It just puts... The, another um, drive shaft there to the front wheel, attach it to the front wheels, and you can use that motor to power the car as well. Um, that wouldn't be too much of a technological revolution, and I see that maybe happening for a Gen 3 Evo. Um, of course, mm. a Gen 2 Evo was planned as well before the pandemic hit. Um, but if if that doesn't repeat... Uh, fingers crossed uh, <laughs> for Gen 3 and we do end up with a Gen 3 Evo I think we might end up with a four wheel drive Gen 3 Evo simply because it's not uh, a, a huge task uh, to use that front motor for powering the cars as well maybe Degrassi will one day end up uh, happy uh, <laughs> with what Formula E is, well, look, is doing um, technologically, I I think um, every, every every social media post that Lucas Degrassi puts up uh, away from the racetrack suggests that he is very happy. It's just he doesn't always show it on his face. Uh, he he has a wonderful life with his uh, family in Monaco, and um, I I would imagine he enjoys racing a lot more than he he gives away as well. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing it. Uh, but uh, he he is one of those taciturn people who maybe doesn't show that uh, always in non-verbal signals would you say uh possibly yeah um it'd be interesting to see how how that sort of those might have been famous last words uh, <laughs> because it depends on at, at least so far yes you're right he has been confident and content about how uh, he, he's doing in, in terms of racing but if he ends up switching teams next year and it looks like he might be moving on to Mahindra um, mm. I'm not sure how that uh, <laughs> what effect that will have on, on his happiness um, depends on how well Mahindra do uh, next year 
it's, it, it's almost like you saw my running order because I wanted to talk about Mahindra. But mm, yeah. for, for, first of all, um, of, of course, there were all those reports, uh, shout out Sam Smith from the race, about how Degrassi would only be at Venturi for one season and they knew that from the start because, he, because he'd already inked a deal for the following season for a works team. I, I don't think there were many of us who suspected that he would plan that far ahead to be at Mahindra. Um, what 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 is it? Do you think that persuaded him to go with Mahindra, not go back home to Abt? Because you know th- there there is a birth there. Uh, Robin Frines is mm-hmm. going to join Abt, but Frines and Degrassi, I think, would have been, you know, not notwithstanding personal issues they may have had in the past, would have been an excellent combination. And um, I I think that. Um, I think that that would that would have perhaps been ideal for uh, Apt's return, but what what would attract a driver of Degrassi's quality away from staying at Venturi on their Maserati transition towards going to Mahindra? Good question about Apt. I think that mainly was because of the fact that the Apt return hasn't been decided when Degrassi him decided for himself to join another manufacturer. Uh, the apt operation only really came together in the last couple of months and we were hearing reports from the race mainly um yeah a lot earlier uh, and a lot a long time before uh, the apt operation had decided for themselves to return to formula e um so that's the main reason why he isn't returning to to apt sportsline next year um i'm surprised yeah, I, I don't really. I, I struggle to see how he could have been so confident about Mahindra um, one and a half years in advance um, as well. As, yeah, difficult to see what persuaded him at the end to, to go to Mahindra. He, of course, at Mahindra will find a solid, well-oiled operation, um, a manufacturer team where he gets to have a say on how he wants the car to be developed. At Maserati, which will succeed Venturi, he would have play, would have had to play second fiddle, maybe. Um, and that's not what he wants. He Degrassi is a team leader, and it's what he wants to do with the team and it's what Mahindra wants and desperately needs um, a team leader um, so it's it's a good fit although I'm surprised as well to see that being decided so early or apparently that being decided so early I'm I'm surprised too and I'm I'm surprised that someone who seems to plan everything in his career so far ahead would have made that choice but maybe that's just colored by the way that Mahindra are performing this season they 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 really um have disappointed me a lot uh, especially when you consider that homologation being what it is they're running exactly the same car essentially that took Alex Lynn to a victory last season so what's happened for them this season um it's it's um, uh, Oliver Rowland is plug and play a very quick driver um alex sims is always going to get you results if he's given the right equipment so Mm -hmm. what exactly has gone wrong technically for them with the same equipment that won a race last season is it is it just as simple as other teams finding an edge without re-homologating the powertrain i'm not sure it's it's technical 
I think it's uh, maybe the qualifying format is the thing that changed because if you look at what changed in between last year and this year it's pretty much only the qualifying system that changed and it appears that last year Mahindra was able to benefit from the Super Pole format this year they're struggling with the groups and, and dual format um, maybe that was the reason why Alex Lin was able to win in, in London last year mm. maybe that's the reason why Mahindra was able to score points more consistently um, than this year and then you of course add on top alongside that new qualifying format the fact that the drivers Alex Sims and, and Olive Rodent so far are struggling to finish the races mm. um, how many retirements does, uh, has, has Oliver Rodent collected so far I think in 8 races 4 or 5 it's but, but, the... and I'm 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 saying this with a slight bias, being someone who liked Alex Lynn. But hmm. um, when you sign Oliver Rowland, you are aware of that risk, surely. Um, if if you if you look at his uh, Nissan finishing record, uh, he scored some excellent results, and he was generally outpacing Buemi in the last two seasons. But he was also incredibly inconsistent, and he has a reputation of. <laughs> crashing cars um mainly not always his own car but sometimes into cars of others um so it was this is very unfair on on oliver um but it was a risk that mahindra surely has been aware of um that oliver roland might be a driver that won't be able to deliver results consistently um <sighs> yeah it's it's really difficult for them this year. Um, the car's not up to the standard of, of where Mahindra would want to be. The drivers are collecting far too many retirements. Um, the qualifying system isn't helping them. So it's... Yeah, it's, it's difficult for them to put everything together on a race weekend um, this, year, this season. <sighs> And it's um, difficult to see how that improves for next year. Some someone who might be coming back to Formula E, though, um, and it, it's quite exciting because I remember him being being a front runner with Mahindra. I, I've heard Felix Rosenquist might be coming back potentially with uh, with potentially with McLaren next season, and I think that would be a very good signing for McLaren and for Felix Rosenquist as well. I, I understand that a lot has changed with Formula E since Gen 1 and uh, it's it's going to take a total re-adaptation re re again, but I've not been following IndyCar. Maybe you have a little more than me. Uh, and so the, the impression I get is that people are saying that while not damaged goods, uh, he, he isn't quite the, uh, he doesn't quite have the reputation he did when he was, uh, when he was getting regular podiums in his first season and that maybe Pato O'Ward has overshadowed him a bit. Um, do, do you think that uh, a move back to Formula E would be good for Felix Rosenqvist and do you think Formula E would benefit from him, him being back? For the second question, yes, absolutely. I think Felix Rosenqvist has been... Every time he's stepped into a Formula E car, he's been doing amazing. 
Um, of course, that mainly was in Gen 1. I think he did one weekend in, in Gen 2 uh, when Pascal Wehrlein uh, wasn't able to, to join Mahindra uh, for the first Diria Ypres mm -hmm. ever uh, because he was still contracted to HWA. Oh, that seems like did, an eternity uh... ago. That that was that was my first Formula E race as um, as as a as a writer, and uh, I remember Felix retired on the first lap of the race, unfortunately. Yeah, because some technical I don't know some, something technical failed. Yeah, oh, that seems like an eternity ago, doesn't it? Sure does. Yeah. Point is, Formula E would benefit greatly if if he returned. It depends, of course, on whether he wants to return to Europe or not. Um, I'm sure his his family would love that for him, um, but he appeared to have lots of fun in the US as well. Um, I'm not, I'll admit it, I'm not follow. I've not been following IndyCar, IndyCar as much as I would have liked to in the last couple of years, but it appears as if Felix Rosenquist might not have been able to collect the results that the team has expected and that would be an indication of a possible return for Felix to Europe and to Formula E. Th things not looking so bad in terms of the composition of the field and in terms of the machinery they're, they're going to be able to use in Formula E next season and yet there still seems to be a cloud that they can't shift away from the sports and we were talking a bit about this before the podcast as well. Um, there see there seems to be a general a general tone of dissatisfaction among some of the people uh, participating in Formula E, and I can't quite get my head around why. Uh, you you seem to have your own theories, and um, I I wonder if maybe we could talk about that for a bit. Yeah, sure. It's an impression I also had when when I returned from the European races we've had this year so far. Um, in my impression, yes, Formula E is recovering from the pandemic and from everything that happened in, in 2020 and 2021. However, I have the impression that it's not going as quickly as if he maybe would have liked to, to recover. Um, it's the, the Formula E sort of have a communications problem. Um, the racing is really good um, most of the time. We have fun tactical races. We have brilliant overtakes. We have uh, attack mode still working a trait in the races. However, nobody, if we're honest, who watches Formula E? Um, in terms of popularity, the series is maybe on the same level as formula 2 maybe formula 3 uh, maybe a local formula 3 a british f3 or something i don't know in germany where formula e arguably has the biggest formula e deal a uh, tv broadcast deal where pro Sieben, which i'd say is the third biggest tv station in, in the country has the rights to broadcast the races and they're doing an amazing job with with the, the shows they're putting on they have a team of 10 editors and reporters on site each time um and cameramen and women as well of course um so it's the the prosieben deal is huge for formula e however less than a million people watch it in germany and if not even that 
that huge TV broadcast deal brings Formula E a larger audience, that indicates that they have a huge communications problem of being able to spread their word. And if you check, of course, that's qualitative, not quantitative, but if you check social media comments on Twitter, on Instagram, the question you most frequently read about Formula E is, well, when are the races? How do I find out when Formula E is on? I'd really like to get into the sport, but I don't, I'm not able to, to find out where to watch it. But they are, they, they are able easy. to find out because the ways to watch section on the website says, uh, and it's, it's yeah. a localized page. So I, I don't get, so I, yes, I, I, I see that question a lot, but I don't understand quite why people are having a problem finding the page on the website. Yeah, I don't see it either because it's fiaformulae.com slash watch. That's all you have to, to, to search for on the internet. Um, so it's easy to find in theory, but in practice, apparently, it's a bit more difficult to find out how and when and, yeah, to watch Formula E. I remember a couple of years ago, um, I think Lando Norris tweeted about Formula E. Um, and he said, well, my old Formula 3 mate, Jake Dennis, is doing his first Formula E race this year. This year. Um, please vote for him on FanBoost. And Jake Dennis replied, well, it's not my first race of the year. It's round three already. <laughs> um, because Lando Norris just didn't know that the Dira Ypres had taken place in in December already. Mm. <sighs> so it, the point is Formula E appears to have a bit of a communications problem uh, with getting the word out, getting eyeballs in front of, of the TV screens. Um, and... Meanwhile, manufacturers are spending heaps of money. Uh, lots of resources are flowing into Formula E. And Formula E is able to generate good news stories. The Gen 3 launch, the arrival of McLaren, apt returning to the sport. But these good news stories are outshadowed by the bad news stories from years ago, when Audi, Mercedes and BMW left. And hmm. that's what's stuck with, with possible audiences, not the fact that there's a new car coming and that it's easy to find out where to watch the races. And that sort of, yeah, it doesn't lift the mood in the paddock. Um, while hmm. all of them working in the paddock are working as hard as they do, they don't really get the reward of having many people tune in. Um, and that's a thing that Formula really should work on and i know they are working on that um but it's not the recovery from 2020 hasn't been as fast as they hoped it would be yes and uh maybe that's not been aided by some of their decisions as well um i i continue to be surprised that a a marketing team containing so many people who seem to have done well in other environments uh, continues to make marketing, well, mistakes, as I would see it. So um, I I, th I think that uh, generally what I've seen when they try to appeal to a Gen Z audience, and, you, you know, I, I'm speaking of someone who clearly is not Gen Z by any shape or form, but but you are, Toby, and maybe, <laughs> maybe you have better perspective on this, but what I see is uh, some people more my age uh, trying to 
trying to do an astroturfing job and uh, trying to uh, try trying to say uh, we know what the young people want so you you get uh, some well as in the case of voltage or the offset you get some influencers coming in who uh, maybe maybe don't have the kind of followers who would normally be interested in Formula E and aren't able to properly communicate the excitement of the sport to a new audience because they're there for their name rather than because of their ability to communicate that. Um, and I, I then see also uh, things like the Positively Charged campaign, which was... Uh, um dropped drops like drops like a hot wet pie after after a cu- after a couple of races at the end of i think uh, the season before last i wonder i wonder how they happen and why they happen given the intelligence in that marketing team and it it makes it quite clear to me why alejandro agag who as far back as season 5 was saying he wanted to move on uh to a more um a more backstairs position because uh, because he'd done everything he wanted to do as the as the front of house uh, figurehead, uh, keeps coming back and keeps being brought back to provide some heft to the sport. Uh, he he was the one, for example, sitting next to Prince Albert in Monaco. Uh, it it does feel like there's a there's a disconnect between what Formula E thinks fans want and what fans do actually want. And what FE is doing in terms of marketing, I'm not a marketing specialist by any means, but what these things like the offset do is, yes, bring eyeballs to the sport, but it's a one-time phenomenon. And FE hasn't been able, with these marketing activations, to sort of form a bond with their with their audience. Um, so that's really what, what Formula E is lacking at the moment being able to create a fan base, if you will. Um, initially, Formula E wanted to, and I still believe they that's what they're aiming for, uh, to, to have an audience of fans that aren't really motorsport fans, but fans of Formula E, of the product, um, and not fans of, of motorsports in general. And it appears that they've sort of reached the ceiling already with people that might be interested in Formula E um, and might tune in from time to time. But the, a real hardcore fan base, how large would you say is the large hardcore Formula E fan base? Oh, large is already the wrong word. How? What size is the hardcore fan base of Formula E? Based on the, based on the numbers that have ever um, wanted to subscribe to anything I've produced content wise, I would say I would say it's quite small. I, I'd say that this is a particularly depressed time to be a Formula E content creator because uh, the 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 hardcore, I think with with a few notable exceptions, the hardcore will will not leave the sport. They 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 believe in the product. They believe in they 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 believe in the in the quality of the racing, even if the marketing is not uh, is not on point. But I I do I do see a lot of people sort of saying it's it's had its day, or just saying that uh, you know uh, look look at the look at the manufacturers and look at uh, it it does seem like a lot of manufacturers are making insurance moves of building, for example, an LMDH uh, endurance car, or um, they are uh, making tentative moves back into Formula One, for example, and um, in the case of Porsche. 
And uh, it, it does make me wonder a bit if what we're looking at is uh, a a sport that's selling itself um, selling itself as being um, on its uppers when actually it's it's not doing enough to entice back privateer teams and maybe they might have an issue in some in 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 some years time now i'd caveat with that with the fact that as the world rally championship has shown you only need two manufacturers to actually make something exciting and uh, it it's uh, and you will still have high quality drivers uh, driving in privateer seats but um Formula E doesn't have the heritage of the WRC or indeed of WEC and uh, and motorsport heritage goes a long way when when it when you're in a recession for example doesn't it mhm it does yeah it's it's timing of course because yeah how should formula e have had the time to sort of build a racing heritage they've only been around for seven and a half years um and you're right um it's it, it's circling back to that solid foundation uh i think formula is doing plenty of things right they are i i I'd refute the argument of of them not being able to attract privateer teams because we have apt we have mclaren joining next year uh we have tachita looking to be still staying around despite all their financial problems and the privateer teams are and will stay as the backbone of formula e which makes me still confident that the championship is here to stay. But that said, the foundation, the, the hardcore fan base that uh, goes through thick and thin with the championship is so small um, that F Formula E is struggling as much as, as they do right now. <sighs> and I, um, the, the problem is I didn't really have a solution either. Um that's why I'm not a marketing specialist, obviously, uh, because otherwise I'd be earning so much more money. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, it, it's <laughs> difficult for Formula E and difficult for me to see how Formula E recovers from that slump at the moment. I don't know. I don't have a solution for it. Um, the, the, the other thing I would say is that when we go to new venues like Jakarta, um, we we see very little of the city, and if if they were if they truly were interested in picking up non motorsport fans and and converting them into motorsport fans, I would say a good place to start would be actually having actually having more of a travel element to uh, to the programming. So um, at at the moment, what we see of Jakarta, for example, or what we will see of Marrakesh in a few weeks' time, is what's inside the circuit uh, we, we we might see a mm. few shots of exotic gardens in the case of marrakesh or, or may, maybe a souk market but uh we're, we're not going to see any of the presenters going in there or uh, checking it out and that that might be a decision they've made based on uh the motorsport fans not liking all of the fluffy stuff around the outside but i i think that um, there are plenty of people paying for Sky Sports F1 who get uh, pl plenty of that lifestyle stuff uh, in, in the two two or three hours before a Grand Prix and put up with it. So I, I wonder if Formula E is actually not focusing enough on the racing in some cases, but then focusing too much at the detriment of uh, being, a, being a city street circuit series in other cases. I mean, 
come on, seriously. Um, I knew very little about Jakarta before the Jakarta E-Prix. And I, I spoke to uh, Retno Nino, who is a Twitter follower, um, who it, um, also also tweets about women's football. Formula E could so easily have done a 20-minute uh, travel segment where they went through the uh, landmarks mm. of Jakarta and uh, maybe maybe sampled some local food with a driver, that kind of thing. Um it, it wouldn't even have been difficult to get a driver because, you know, dr- drivers have their assigned PR requ- requirements during the weekend. I, I don't see why these things don't happen. Um, maybe maybe it's been found in market research that they will be unpopular, but my suspicion is rather more that they haven't been tried because no one thought it was a good idea. Hmm. I wonder what you think about the fact that Formula E is using mostly circuits on the outskirts of cities by now. Because the first couple of years, think back to Buenos Aires, Miami, Long Beach, what else? London, Battersea Park. Moscow. Uh, Moscow. Wow, that was like proper city street circuit in the middle of the place type of circuit racing. Um, And now we have... Tempelhof, which, if we're honest, isn't a street circuit. We have Jakarta, which is, if we're honest, not a street circuit. New York, in some sort of port region that smells like fish, and it's (laughs) not really in the center of the city. Of course, you have the nice backdrop, but it's not city center racing. Same applies to London now with the XL. It's It's not in front of Buckingham Palace or... Uh, the Houses of Parliament. And the same applies to Diria, which isn't in Riyadh. Which it's it's in, in a small town outside Riyadh. Should Formula E, in your opinion, maybe return to the roots of seasons one, two, and three and commit themselves to proper street circuits? Or is it good what they're, what they're doing right now with the semi-permanent circuits on the outskirts i don't think it's good i don't think it's good what they're doing right now because what they're doing is effectively creating racetracks um that then remain after they leave and uh saying that they are temporary street circuits and that that it's sustainable and uh, you're also as you said uh getting a lot of circuits on the periphery of cities that don't actually show you the city the other side of it is that even when they were in the middle of a city with major landmarks next to them, you generally found that the uh, DHL boards and the uh, Tech Pro barriers uh, were 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 so deep and high that, uh, and 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 the uh, and the cameras were so focused uh, down on the track that you you very rarely saw anything particularly alluring as the cars drove past um, the landmarks. And I I would say that there there are. Uh, exceptions. I, I think Paris was an exception. I think uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think Rome, um, e- even though the EUR district has more of a note of Mussolini than anything uh, imperial, um, it, it's it still is a, an impressive place on which to see Formula E cars. But you need more of those places, and it, you also need the TV direction to be more creative about about how it shows the best of those places. I think one of the reasons that people love Monaco so much is because people people know what they're going to get with Monaco. And um, through Monaco's in-house TV directors, love them or hate them, they generally miss the best overtaking manoeuvres, but, <laughs> but they generally know how to point the camera at the casino. Uh, you generally get that. And um, 
we we don't we don't have enough monaco's on the calendar and that might just be because you try you try getting an FIA motorsport series that is not F1 uh, to license and close the city center for for a weekend i i would imagine it was impossible unless you've got the pull of formula 1 post drive to survive mhm yeah it it's difficult of course as well if you keep the residents in mind um i always think back to to switzerland when i think of city center races uh where that didn't go well for formula e neither in zurich nor in bern um where there were protests about the race and citizens yeah protesting the fact that formula e is taking away their streets and their parking areas for for one weekend and they were hoping to to or and were successful in in that uh, mission to get formula e out of their their cities um that's why we're not having a swiss e prix anymore um because formula e wasn't able to work together with the residents in bern and zurich as well as would have been necessary um so it's i, I understand why formula e is moving more and more towards these semi-permanent circuits like Berlin, Jakarta, Diria, New York, London. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't step on, on the toes of too many people living there. Um, same applies to Rome. When we use these streets in Rome, I love the place. The the, the circuit in Rome is absolutely amazing. But in the area, pretty much there's pretty much nobody living there. It's mainly offices um, that that you inflict on, um, and that that's okay for a weekend because you can, yeah. If you can just use these streets, you can use these streets a lot easier than the streets they used in in Bern. Um, so I understand why Formula is doing that. That said, I th- also think that it would maybe be beneficial for the audiences of Formula E be it on TV or in the actual cities to sort of have no other choice but to watch Formula E. That's what racing in in Monaco, wide racing in Monaco is so spectacular for the people living there. Um, Either they're annoyed, of course, or they enjoy the fact that their place is being shown on on TV and so many people are watching it. and Formula E hasn't been able to do that um, with, with the locations they, they've been going to in the last couple of years, at least in my impression. Jakarta might be the exception of the rule, um, because in, in all fairness, uh, the uh, hype, the local hype, uh, was spectacular um, in, in Jakarta. I think the race highlights even are as we speak, one of the most watched YouTube videos on the Formula E YouTube channel. Um, as popular as the drag race thing with the FE car and a cheetah. I mm. think these two videos have a similar amount of, amount of views as we speak. Um, so Jakarta might be the, opt- the, the exception of the rule there. Um, yeah. <sighs> I don't know. And, and uh, J- Jakarta as well in terms of uh, a, a country and venue is... I, I would say an example of Formula E being clever in that in Indonesia has a massive uh, sports sports mad market and uh, that 
there there were lots of Indonesian motorsport fans. They they proved that when Rio Harianto had a season in Formula One and was named driver of the day in the first race. Uh, that that would not have happened without uh, Indonesian fans um, um, grouping together in in a way that maybe we've only really seen from perhaps some of the uh, so, some of some of the German fans during the Schumacher era for example um maybe also Max Verstappen fans so I I think you're talking about a fan base that is already engaged so if Formula E continues to go going to Jakarta I think that's the kind of venue underserved by underserved by Formula One that might mm-hmm. might uh, might be of benefit to Formula E eventually and let's not forget South Korea. I'm really looking forward to Seoul as as yeah the season finale because the South Korean culture is one that really likes their technology, <laughs> um, and mm. Formula E seems like a perfect fit for for the capital of South Korea. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how Formula E does there. At the moment, there's too much hype about the race, um, as opposed to Jakarta, where people have been talking about Formula E forever, uh, even before the championship arrived there. Um, that will change, hopefully, in the last, next couple of, of weeks. Hmm. Um, and then Seoul is pretty much the ideal location for Formula E. Let's see how well Formula E does there. Um, it's going to be an early morning f- for, for the two of us again, uh, being based in Europe. Uh, unless someone invites us to to Seoul, of course. Um, <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how Formula E does there. Yeah, um, I, the the lack of hype around a Formula E event is uh, sadly becoming a customary thing now. But uh, uh, we we, sh- we, sh- we shall see. Uh, I remember they hired BTS a few years ago to drum up some interest in it. So uh, may- maybe that will happen again. Um, who knows? Uh, but uh, yeah, um, we 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 really need some uh, some excitement to come from somewhere. Um, so yeah, plenty of excitement on the track, and I've got to say this was a very exciting discussion that you and I had. Uh, thank you very much, Toby Bloom, for being my guest on this edition of the Motion E podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really good to sort of go in depth. I, I don't think this sort of discussion you get anywhere else. Um, so it's yeah, it's been a really nice time. I'm not sure how long this recording is already, but I enjoyed every second of it. It's been uh, enormously long. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me, though. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to return any time you want. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks very much.